Good morning, Church Genesis. All right. You know, I need that little extra wake up. Uh, for some of you, you may know this. Others of you, this may be news to you, that uh, my wife and I had our third child about five weeks ago. Thank you very much. Uh, I just want to say thanks to many of you all who prayed and many of you who have brought meals to us and loved on us. We have, uh, we have really experienced uh, the, the love and, and, uh, and the support of this church family in the last month, so thank you so much. We had a baby boy. His name is Gideon. He is healthy and strong, and Mommy is doing well and uh, also, and uh, we're not getting any sleep, but, you know, I can't, apparently that's par for the course. So, today, we are going to continue our series uh, in Matthew chapter 5 in the Beatitudes. And these are eight statements that Jesus made in one of his most famous messages, the Sermon on the Mount. And uh, we've been walking through those, and today we're looking at verse 8. Here's what Jesus said in Matthew 5, verse 8. He said, Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. William Barclay says, This is the Beatitude, which demands that all who read it should stop and think and examine themselves. And so that's what we're going to do here this morning. Because Jesus makes you and I an incredible, life-altering promise in this statement. Another way to say it is this, and it's in your notes. If your heart is pure, you will see God. Think about that. Wouldn't you love to see God? I mean, with your own eyes. I know I would. I mean, don't you think if you could see God that all of your worries and all of your doubts would be erased? Don't you think if you could see God that everything in your life would be better? I mean, I think if we could see God, I think instantly we would know our place in the world. We would know what's important and what's not. I think if we could see God with our own eyes, I think it would radically transform how we live our lives on a daily basis. And the truth is, we're all going to see God face to face one day. We all have the same finish line. You and I are all going to stand before God face to face. Let's pause right here for a second and ask. Do you ever, you ever stop and think about that moment? I love thinking about the moment when I'm going to see Jesus face to face. What will he look like? Uh, how, will, how will he respond when he sees me? Or how will I respond when I see him? What will he say to me? What will I say to him? There will come a day... When you and I are going to stand before Jesus, and that reality should radically change the way we live our lives here today. But when Jesus says, blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God, he's speaking in the present tense. He's not talking about in heaven. He's talking about our daily lives here and now. Now, the Bible says that we are called to live by faith and not by sight. 2 Corinthians says that we put our faith not on what is seen, but what is unseen. So what does Jesus mean when he says that we can see God in our daily lives? Well, in short, seeing God in the Bible is living in and experiencing God's presence. You may want to write that down if you're taking notes. Seeing God in the Bible is experiencing His presence and His power at work in our lives on a daily basis. This is what it means to see God. This is what Jesus was talking about. Now, to many people, God seems remote and unconcerned with the small details of our lives. God lives light years away in a place called heaven, and our Western minds have been greatly influenced by 
Enlightenment philosophers who years ago painted a picture as God, as this, uh, a God that is a divine watchmaker. And that he is this being who set the universe in motion, uh, and now he sits back and watches it tick, and he's not intimately involved in our lives. But the Bible paints a very different picture. In fact, the exact opposite. The Bible paints the picture of a God who is intimately involved and wants us to experience His presence on a daily basis. I'm going to read a portion of Psalm 139. I want you to listen how the psalmist speaks about seeing God in his life and, in his, and experiencing God's presence in his life. Here's what he says. You have searched me, Lord, and you know me. You know when I sit and when I rise. He knows when you sit. He knows when you rise. You perceive my thoughts from afar, the psalmist says. You discern my going out and my lying down. You are familiar with all my ways. God is familiar with all of your ways. Before a word is even on my tongue, the psalmist says, Lord, you know it completely. You hem me in behind and before. You lay your hand upon me. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me, too lofty for me to attain. He's saying, how can, I can't even understand how your presence is always with me, God. He says in verse 7, where can I go from your spirit? Where can I flee from your presence, God? If I go up to the heavens, you are there. If I make my bed in the depths, you are there. If I rise on the wings of the dawn or if I settle on the far side of the sea, even there, God, your hand will guide me and your right hand will hold me fast. A God who holds us by the right hand is a God who wants us to experience his presence in our lives every day. He goes on. If I say, surely the darkness will hide me, the light will become night around me. Even the darkness will not be dark to you. The night will shine like the day, for darkness is as light to you. He's speaking of the sin in his life. We're going to talk about that in just a few minutes. He goes on. For you created my inmost being. You knit me together in my mother's womb. He's saying, even in my mother's womb, your presence was with me, God. Your presence was with me even there. I praise you because I'm fearfully and wonderfully made. Your works are wonderful. I know that full well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was made in that secret place, when I was woven together in the depths of the earth. Your eyes saw my unformed body. All the days of my life were ordained for me and written in your book before one of them came to be. How precious to me are your thoughts, God. How vast is the sum of them. Were I to count them, they would outnumber the grains of the sand. When I am awake, I am still with you. Do you hear the psalmist? Do you hear what he's saying? He's testifying and he's saying, I see God's presence every day, everywhere I go. Don't you want that? I do. Don't you want to experience more of God's presence in your life? Jewish rabbis often emphasize the need to practice Kavanaugh in daily life. Hebrew writer Abraham Heschel says the ca that Kavanaugh is being attentive to God's presence. It is living with an awareness that God is present, de desiring to speak to us and work through us at every moment. Imagine how meaningful our days would be if we undertook all our endeavors this way, he writes. Living with Kavanaugh utterly changes our experience of life. Don't you think your life would be radically transformed if you could see God in your life every day? Wouldn't you like to experience His presence when you sit down to read the Bible or to pray, rather than just reading through it and wondering if He's even listening to you? How would, you like, how would your life change if you could see God in your workplace, in your office, in your school? 
What would happen if you could see what God was doing in your neighborhood? How would seeing God in your marriage change the way you relate and treat your spouse? What if we could experience God's presence and power as parents trying to guide and raise our children? That would be a tremendous blessing, wouldn't it? Jesus promised that if your heart is pure, you will see God in your daily life, and it will be a blessing. Author and New Testament scholar William Barclay says this. He says, it is one of the simple facts of life that we see only what we're able to see. Here's what he means by that. For the average person who goes out at night and looks up at the sky, if you're anything, you're in, if you're anything like me, all you see is a sky that's just speckled with a bunch of dotted white light, right? But for the well-trained astronomer who comes and looks up at the sky, what does he or she see? They see stars and planets that they can call by name. The well-trained astronomer will see constellations that you and I would never see. And they will teach us things that our untrained eyes just aren't able to see. We, are, we see what we're able to see. And what Jesus says here, when he says, Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. What he's saying is, the more your heart is trained by purity, the more you'll see God. Jesus said, if your heart is pure, you're going to see him. Now, let's break down a little bit of the language here. The Greek word for pure there uh, that Jesus uses is the word katharis. Katharis has two basic meanings. The first meaning is this, to be cleansed, to be cleansed. The second meaning is to be unmixed or undivided. So if you're keeping notes, to be pure in heart means to seek God with an undivided and clean heart. This is what Jesus was getting at when he said, that in Matthew 5 8. To be pure in heart means to seek God with an undivided and clean heart. You know, after we drink a glass of milk and we put that glass in the dishwasher or the sink and we clean it, we clean it because the next time we use that glass, say for a drink of water, we want to drink purely water. We don't want to drink milk, uh, 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 drink a glass of water with a few, a few drops of sour milk that's left in there. Although if you're a parent, that's inevitably going to happen to you. Isn't it amazing how bad sour milk smells? We have thrown cups away because we're like, there ain't no way we can get the smell out of that cup. <laughs> Pure means to be cleansed, but it also means to be unmixed or undivided. So a few years ago, uh, I made a big step in my life. Uh, I was a daily coffee drinker. I'm still a daily coffee drinker. But uh, several years ago, uh, so I'd say about four or five years ago, I was going to go on a trip overseas, and before I went overseas, I was faced with uh, a problem, a dilemma. And here was the dilemma. Every day, I looked forward to my nice cup of coffee, and I was in the routine of having uh, my coffee with uh, a decent, good splash of half and half and two packets of Splenda. Mix it together. Ah, oh, boy, that's good. Isn't that good? Anybody like that? Yeah? All right. Who's half and halfers? How many coffee drinkers? Raise your hand. You're coffee drinkers? All right. How many half and halfers? Okay, a few. Some of you put that powder stuff in there. What are you doing? What are you doing? That, that, we, we weren't supposed to drink that stuff. I, I, I apologize. We served that here. I'm sorry. Uh, so I was encouraged by a con... I was, I was... Sorry, Ben. I was encouraged by a coffee connoisseur friend of mine to drink co black coffee. 
He told me over and over again, Kevin, if you'll drink black coffee, your coffee experience will radically change. And I thought, oh, great. And he says, no, listen, it only takes about two weeks if you drink black coffee and you will radically, it, it, it'll change your taste of coffee. You'll be able to taste the coffee. It will taste good and you can get high quality, good coffee and you'll begin to actually enjoy drinking black coffee. Well, I thought he was nuts, but I'm getting ready to go on this overseas trip and I thought, I, I'm going to get over overseas and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to freak out like a, like a, you know, a little girl and, um, no offense girls, and um, I'm going to get over there. I'm not going to have any half and half. I'm worried about not being able to find half and half over there. Or what if I get over there and they have some cream rub, but they don't have my Splenda? What am I going to do? So I decided, okay, this is it. I'm going to make the leap. And for a, first, for a few weeks before I went overseas, I went black. And it has changed my life. <laughs> I am now a semi-coffee snob. And if you're putting stuff in your coffee, well, you're impure. And... <laughs> You're drinking impure coffee. Stop doing that. Get that stuff out of your coffee and drink coffee as God intended for it to be had. If you want milk and cream, just get you a cup, put some milk and sugar in there and drink it. Jesus says, it's been a few weeks, it's been a while. Jesus says, if you seek God with an unmixed or undivided and clean heart, you'll see him. You know, when Jesus made the statement, he was actually quoting from the Old Testament. He was quoting from Psalm chapter 24. Jesus' Bible, if you will, was the Old Testament. And so all of Jesus' teaching and all of his messages were drawn from the Old Testament. Look at Psalm 24. Let's look at this real briefly. We're going to see what Jesus was teaching from. Who may ascend the mountain of the Lord? Who may stand in his holy place? The one who has clean hands and a pure heart, who does not trust an idol or swear by a false god. They will, they will receive blessing from the Lord and vindication from God their Savior. Such is the generation of those who seek Him, who seek your face, God of Jacob. Sound familiar? See, it was King David who wrote this psalm, and David asked the question, Who may ascend the mountain of the Lord? Who may stand in His holy, pla his holy place? And what David was saying was, Who gets to see and experience the presence of God? The answer is in verse 4. It is the one who has clean hands and a pure heart. The one who does not trust in an idol or swear by a false God. Now, you've got to keep in mind, you may know this, just to remind you this morning, for the Israelites to trust in an idol or swear by a false God meant that they were giving their hearts and their lives to something or someone other than God. An idol is anything in our lives that serves to bring us the life and meaning that God was intended to bring us. And so if a pure heart is an undivided and clean heart, then an impure heart is a divided heart that pursues something or someone other than God. If an impure heart is seeking God with a divided heart, then the first step we need to take in having a pure heart, and this is point number one in your notes, is that we've got to seek God with our whole hearts. Seek God with your whole heart. Author and pastor John Piper says to seek God with your whole heart is to will one thing. It means the one thing you seek in life is God and His will. It is saying my will is to do God's will in every area of my life. My will is to do God's will 
in every area of my life. This is what it means to seek God with your whole heart. It is bringing every area of your life under the lordship of Jesus Christ. You know, life is lived from the heart, isn't it? That's why Proverbs 4.23 says, Above all else, guard your hearts, for it is the wellspring of life. The heart is the center of who we are. It's our character and our will. It's the place where our motivations and our desires come from. But our hearts are also Our hearts are also the place where sin comes from. In Matthew 15, Jesus said this, The things that come out of a person's mouth come from the heart. These things defile them. Verse 19, For out of the heart come evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false testimony, slander. In Luke 11, Jesus said to the Pharisees, You Pharisees clean the outside of the cup of the dish, but inside you are full of greed and wickedness. The inside of the cup needs to be cleansed. See, the problem is we want to do God's will, but we want to do our will also. One part of me wants to know and please God and do his will, but another part of me, the sin living in me, wants to do my will and please myself. One part of my heart wants God, other part of my heart wants myself and the things of this world. When our heart wants two things, we have a divided and impure heart. And the truth is, the truth is most of your problems and mine come from a divided heart. Listen to what Paul said about himself in Romans 7 as I read this. So I find this law at work, Paul says, although I want to do good, one part, evil is right there with me, second part. For in my inner being I delight in God's law, one part, but I see another law at work within me, waging war against the law of my mind and making me a prisoner of the law at sin at work within me. Paul says this other side in us, this sin living us, is waging war against the Jesus in us that wants to do God's will. So what's the, what's the solution? Well, it begins with making the decision. We have to make the decision. We underestimate the, 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 the spiritual significance of making a decision with our will. We have to make the decision to seek God with our whole hearts, to be able to say that my will is to do God's will in every area of my life. My will is to do God's will in my marriage. My will is to do God's will in my parenting. My will is to do God's will in my finances. My will is to do God's will in my workplace. My will is to do God's will in the words I speak every single day. My will is to do God's will in what I allow into my eyes and into my mind. My will is to do God's will and fill in the blank in every area of our life. So let me ask you, is there an area of your life right now where you know you're trying to seek both your will and God's? When your will is to do God's will in every area of your life, you will see God and you'll experience God's presence and power in your life. Be like King David. Listen to what King David said in Psalm 27. I love this. King David said, one thing I ask from the Lord, this only do I seek. He was a man of one thing, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to gaze on the beauty of the Lord and to seek him in his temple. David is speaking there and talks about the house of the Lord and the beauty of the Lord in his temple. He's talking about living in God's presence. He's talking about giving his whole heart to God. He says in verse 8, my heart says of you, God, Seek his face. 
Your face, Lord, I will seek. Notice how David makes the decision. He says, your face, Lord, I will seek. You are the one thing I'm after, God. Or listen to what Jeremiah 29, 13 says. God says to us through Jeremiah, he promises us, and maybe he's saying this to you this morning. Insert your name. You will seek me and find me when you seek me with what? All of your heart. So the path to a pure heart is to place, is to place every part of yourself and area of your life under God's direction. This is what it means to seek God with your heart. Our greatest example of this, our greatest example of wholehearted devotion is Jesus. He was not only sent to die on the cross, but he was also uh, sent to model on earth in his humanity what it looks like to follow God with a pure heart. And there is an entire other sermon or two or three that we could preach about Jesus and his example in this, but let me give you two quick quotes of Jesus. He says in John 8, 29, the one who sent me is with me. He's not left me. He's always experiencing God's presence. And here's what he says, for I always do what pleases him. Do you hear the, you hear the motivation of his heart? Wouldn't you love to be able to say that? Here's what, a, here's what a wholehearted devotion to Jesus looks like. I'm always seeking to do what pleases God. Or look in verse, chapter 14, verse 31, he says this. He says, but he comes so that the world may, know, uh, may learn that I love the Father. So Jesus says, I love the Father. And here, here's how he expresses his love to his Father. I do exactly what my Father has commanded me. I do exactly what my Father has commanded me. He said, my will is to do God's will in every area of my life. Jesus modeled the way for us. So my question, is this your motivation? Is this the will of your life, to do God's will? If not, make the decision today. If you've made that decision in the past, maybe this morning you need to reaffirm that. I find this is a decision I need to make every single day, sometimes multiple times a day. I'm going to do God's will in every area of my life. The second step you need to take in order to have a pure heart is not only make the decision, but you need to ask God for help. It's in your notes. Number two, ask God for help. Back in Psalm 27, David started out with saying, one thing I ask from the Lord. David knew he couldn't do it alone. Even David, a man after God's own heart, knew he had to ask for God's help. And Jesus says in John 15, 5, that apart from me, you can do nothing. That apart from Christ, we can do nothing. And that includes even seeking God. So we must ask God for help in order to seek him. So I want to encourage you, pray some of these prayers. Look at a few of these prayers. In Psalm 86, 11. Teach me your way, O Lord. This is a prayer. Teach me your way, O Lord, that I may rely on your faithfulness. Give me what? An undivided heart that I may fear your name. Ask God. Say, begin praying this in your life and see if your life doesn't radically change. Begin saying, God, would you give me an undivided heart? Or maybe Psalm 51, David's prayer. He says this, create in me a pure heart, O God. Renew a steadfast spirit within me. David says, create in me. Give me a divided, undivided heart. Create in me a pure heart. Or Psalm 31, we read earlier. Look at a prayer at the end of that Psalm, 30, Psalm 139. Search me, God, and know my heart. Test me and know my anxious thoughts. See if there's any offensive way in me and lead me in the way of everlasting. Author Paul Miller wrote a book called A Praying Life. And he says at the end of every day, he just simply asked God, God, where did I see you today? Maybe you can try that. 
Maybe you can try by just simply asking God at the end of every day of your life, God, where did I see you today? And God, would you open my eyes so that I can see where you are working in every area of my life? But here's the challenge. Don't stop at just asking God for help. I find this is where most Christians make a mistake. This is where I've made a mistake for the most part of the last 15 years of walking with the Lord. We stop at asking God for help. You have to do your part to purify your heart. That's point number three. Purify your heart. Now, this seems like a little bit of a conundrum, right? On one hand, God is the one who gives us a pure heart. We can't do anything without Him. He's the one who does it. But on the other hand, I'm telling you to purify your heart. Let me explain over the next few minutes what that means. There's a common notion, an idea, that runs throughout the American church that says because of God's grace, we can have a lazy attitude towards sin. So many Christians me being one of them, have had the attitude and have the attitude that because Jesus died on the cross and paid for my sins because of his grace and forgiveness, I really don't have to worry too much about the sin in my life. And the prevailing notion is this. As long as I've accepted Christ as my Lord and I try to live a good life and I stay away from the real big sins, I'm good. I'm here to tell you this morning. That lazy attitude towards sin is a lie from the pit of hell. And if you believe that lie, you're being deceived by the enemy. And I believe God wants to open your heart and your eyes. Listen, over and over again in the Bible, it says it is by grace that we've been saved. You know, Jesus lived a perfect and sinless life. He died on the cross, and three days later, he rose again. His death on the cross paid the penalty for your sin and for mine. And on the cross, Jesus took all of my sin, and he offers me his righteousness. And if we accept that offer, that free gift of grace, if we put our faith and trust in Jesus Christ and declare him as Lord and Savior, the Bible says we will be saved. Here's how the Apostle Paul says it in Romans chapter 5, verses 18 through 21. Follow along. Consequently, consequently, just as one trespass resulted in condemnation for all people, speaking of Adam, sin, so also one righteous act resulted in justification and life for all people, speaking of Jesus. Verse 19, for just as through the disobedience of the one man, Adam, the many were made sinners, so also through the obedience of the one man, Jesus, many will be made righteous. Keep following. The law was brought in so that the trespass might might increase. He's saying the commands in the Bible are meant to show us that we are sinners in desperate need of a Savior. He goes on, but where sin increased, grace increased all the more. That's the good news, that God's grace, no matter how big your sin is, God's grace covers it. So that, verse 21, just as sin reigned in death in Adam's life and in our life before Christ, so also grace might reign through righteousness to bring eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. We have eternal life in Jesus Christ. But six months ago, I had a personal experience in my life And the Lord began to work on my heart and bring me to the realization that Paul didn't stop there. Listen to what Paul says about our attitude towards sin and what it should be in light of God's grace. Chapter 6, verse 1. Follow along. What shall we say then? Shall we go on sinning so that grace may increase? 
God has poured out his grace on our life. Does that mean we just should have a lazy attitude towards sin and just kind of keep taking advantage of that grace? Paul says, by no means. We are those who have died to sin. How can we live in it any longer? He skips down, verse 12. Listen to what he says. Therefore, do not let sin reign in your mortal body so that you obey its evil desires. Do not offer any part of yourself to sin as an instrument of wickedness, but rather offer yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life. And listen, offer every part of yourself to him as an instrument of righteousness. See, there were some sins in my life that I had prayed for years that God would come and help me overcome them. Help me overcome these. Help me overcome these. And I think those were valid prayers, and God heard those prayers. But then I came across this passage here in Romans, and I began to open, it, it, this passage began to open my eyes to the truth, that God wants me to do my part to get sin out of my life. Over and over and over again in the New Testament, it says, because of God's grace, stop sinning. Get it out of your life. He brought, he brought this passage, he brought several passages to me that convicted me of my lazy attitude towards sin. I'm going to give you just a few. Look at James chapter 4, verse 8. James 4, 8 says, Come near to God, and he will come near to you. Wash your hands, you sinners, and do what? Purify your hearts, you double-minded. He says you double-minded, speaking of living with a divided heart. James says, come near to God, and he will come near, near to you. That's the step of praying James is speaking of. But what's the next step James gives here? Do your part and purify yourself. Repent of the sin of your, in your life. Or how about this passage in 1 John 3? This one was the most convi uh, convicting of all. 1 John chapter 3, verse 3, 3, 3 through 6. See what great love the Father has lavished on us, that we should be called children of God, and that is what we are. And so John prefaces what he's getting ready to say by saying, we are children of God. If you're in Christ, you're a child of God. But what should be the fruit of that? He said, the reason the world does not know us is that it did not know him. Dear friends, we are, uh, now we are children of God, and, that we will, and what we will be has not yet been known. Okay, but we know that when Christ appears, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. We're going to see Jesus face to face. All who have this hope, all of us who are children of God, looking forward to seeing Jesus to face, to face to face, how should we, what attitude should we have towards sin here and now? He says, purify themselves just as he is pure. We're called to purify ourselves. Listen to this. Everyone who sins breaks the law. In fact, sin is lawlessness. But you know that he appeared so that he might take away your sins, and in him is no sin. Talking about Jesus. This next statement rocked my world. No one who lives in him keeps on sinning. No one who continues to sin has either seen God or known God. I mean, do I need to expand on that? Isn't that convicting? I don't know about you, but that rocked my world six months ago. It began to really change my life. That God says, listen, because you're in relationship with me, get that sin out of your life. Get it out. Listen, to, I'll give you one more. Hebrews 12, 1 through 2. Therefore, and he's made the case about what God has done for us. Therefore, because of what God's done for us, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, let us do what? Throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles. He's saying, get that sin out of your life and let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of our faith. 
throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles. We must do our part in getting sin out of our lives. Now listen, I'm not saying we need to get sin out of our lives in order to be saved. And I'm not saying we, need to, we should expect to never have sin in our life. All of these passages are addressing our heart and our attitude towards sin. We must do our part. Listen, when God looks at us, he sees Jesus in us. When God looks at you, if you are a Christian, the Bible says that he has removed your sins as far as the east is from the west, and that means he no longer views you in light of your sin. Instead, he views you as your child. He sees the righteousness of Jesus in you. He doesn't see your sin. Your sin does not affect God's view of you. However, our sin affects our view of God. And it affects our ability to experience God's power and presence in our life. A.W. Tozer says this, Sin has so clouded the lenses of our hearts that we cannot see God shining all around us. We have lazy attitude towards sin. And our lazy attitude towards sin is like wearing a pair of dirty sunglasses. Right? You've had this happen. Dirty, scratched up sunglasses. You put them on, you're driving down the road, you say to yourself, I can't believe I haven't gotten rid of these things and bought some more sunglasses. But you can't see out of those things. And you don't need to be driving with them on, for heaven's sake. Our sin blinds us, and it hinders our ability to see God and experience His presence. So if you don't experience more of God's presence in your life, then purify yourself. Train yourself to be godly, the Bible says. Repent of the sin in your life. Paul Miller says that Jesus saved us from two deaths. He saved us from an eternal death. That those who put their faith and trust in Christ will be with Jesus in eternity. And we are saved from hell, which is the eternal death. But Paul Miller says this, and this this just so struck me and brought life and encouragement to me. And hope to me, he says, but Jesus also saved us from a living death. That God wants us and is longing to save us, not just from eternal death, from a living death that is caused by the sin in our life that we have this lazy attitude towards. Listen, when Jesus says, blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God, He means it. He's promising you. This is not a message of condemnation. This is a message of hope, a message of compassion. Jesus, I believe, when he says, blessed are the pure in heart, for you will see God, he's saying, oh, he's saying, oh, if you would just purify your heart, you will see me, and you'll see my presence, and you'll see what I'm wanting to do in you and through you and see what what I want to do in the world. Oh, I think God is leaning over heaven right now. And I think he's saying to you and me, purify yourselves. Seek me with your whole heart. Make it your will to do my will in every area of your life. Ask me for help. And then do your part to get sin out of your life. And if we will do this, Genesis Church... Our personal lives are going to change. Our marriages are going to change. Our families are going to change. Our workplaces are going to change. Our neighborhoods in this community are going to change. Genesis Church is going to change. And we, as a family of God, are going to see God do immeasurably more than we could ever ask or imagine. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for your son, Jesus Christ, and I thank you 
that through his life and his death on the cross that we have an eternal salvation. I thank you, Lord, that we have hope in you, Jesus, not only for eternity, but for here and now. And God, you know, I'm still, still a work in progress. You know that I have not figured this out, Lord. But I press on towards you, Lord, to win the prize that you called, called me heavenly, towards heaven for. And I pray that, that you will encourage our church family, Lord. Encourage each one of us who are sitting here today to have pure hearts, to seek you with our whole heart, to purify ourselves. Help us to be men and women who will one thing. May we seek your face, Jesus. May we seek your face. May you bring glory and honor to your name through our lives and through our church. We pray this, Jesus. In your name, amen.